And now, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Good morning, and welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. Our show today is titled Hungry and Obese. Shortly, we'll explain why. Our guests today are Robert Weissman, President of Public Citizen in Washington, D.C. Good morning, Robert. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Allison Pratt, Director of Policy and Services at the Alameda County Community Food Bank. Good morning, Allison. Good morning. David Bacon, an international journalist and celebrated author. Good morning, David. Hi there. And Fred Watson of the Open Heart Kitchen. Good morning, Fred. Good morning, Doctor. Fred was a program manager earning a six-figure salary when he lost his job and ended up in a soup kitchen. Or he went to a soup kitchen might be more accurate. He'll talk about what that was like and what he is doing to turn his life around. We'll also be talking about the destruction of the middle class in this country and the dramatic rise in inequality of wealth and inequality of levels of hunger among children, families, the middle class, and seniors in this country, and what some people are trying to do about it. We'll also find out why so many low-income people don't have access to healthy food and are buying cheap food loaded with fat and sugar. So, Hungry and Obese is today's show. Let's get right to it. Robert Weissman, the president of Public Citizen, is speaking to us today from his office in Washington, D.C., and we're fortunate to have him with us. Welcome again, Robert. It's very good to be with you. In a nutshell, please tell us what's going on in this country since the 1970s and 80s in terms of the distribution of wealth. Well, it's become far more skewed. and We have a hollowing out of the big middle class, and a lot of wealth really concentrated at the in the top 10%, and then even within the 10%, a very sharp concentration in the top 1% or the top half percent. Um, there are a variety of factors that, that account for this very sharp concentration of wealth, and they, they sort of group around an, an, an increasing concentration of corporate power and an attack on, on labor unions. I'd say there are a lot of different pieces to it, but maybe the four priority or most important factors are, first, that we've had very sharp declines in the level of unionization in the country, um, very low levels of unionization now in the private sector. Most people who are unionized are in the, or have public sector jobs, which is why those jobs are better paying. The second and related factor is the, which David, one of your guests, is expert on, is the real speed up of corporate globalization. Uh, the massive outsourcing of manufacturing jobs from the United States all over the world and the use of the threat of outsourcing and global production to undermine wages in the existing, the still existing manufacturing jobs in the United States. Those really were the jobs of the, of the well-paid working class and the middle class not so long ago, and many fewer of those jobs exist and the ones that exist pay much less well than, did, than they did not very long ago. A third key factor was the radical overhaul of the 
CHAC system. Um, this has happened with, through several rounds, but most importantly and recently through with the Bush II tax cuts, which really cut the rates for the rich very dramatically and led to a massive shift of wealth upwards to the rich. And finally, the collapse of the housing market and the current financial crisis and recession has hurt all, you know, has hurt everyone from the, the, the richest to the poorest, but has really devastated um, lower middle income people, particularly. Obviously, we now have one in six people out of work in this country are not able to get full time work who are seeking it. So that's dramatically harmed their income and their wealth. But the foreclosure crisis and the collapse in housing prices has stripped the wealth out of many uh, lower middle income class p- communities across the country, and most devastatingly, probably among uh, minority communities, where the wealth that people did have, much less than in richer communities and in whiter communities, was very heavily concentrated in, in housing wealth, and both because of the collapse of housing values and because of a lot of the predatory loans that really went after people who had embedded wealth in their homes, people now have much less than they did just five years ago. We hear these numbers that the uh, the upper 1% of this country have moved from controlling 22% uh, 30 years ago to now controlling 40 50%. How accurate do you believe these numbers to be? Uh, I think they're exactly accurate. The only problem with the numbers, the problem with the numbers is not their accuracy. Um, the problem with the numbers is that it's very hard for people to relate to those numbers and understand what they mean in any meaningful way in terms of their lives. But I think if we just say people can get that there is now a class of ultra super rich people and the very broad experience of this country, the people really having to scramble to get by in a way that's very different than was the case 25 or 35 years ago. Um, the all, Both those things are encapsulated by this increasing inequality in our society. So when you say it's more than numbers, in other words, it's real people, I think, you know, as Tony Judd points out to us, poverty is an abstraction unless you're actually feeling it, and that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yes, and, and, and it sounds like the guests will, will be elaborating on this, but it's not just poverty. Uh, it is, I mean, poverty is sort of is the most acute piece of this and, and the most troubling one, um, but there are all kinds of other problems that stem from inequality of the severe nature that we have in our society. We have a less, it's a less good place to live um, when you've got this kind of inequality. We've, there's, a, there's a democracy deficit that follows because with the ability of a handful of really super rich people and super powerful corporations to dominate the political process, which has all kinds of spillover effects, including and exacerbating the wealth and income inequality problem, but also in terms of everything from uh, having appropriate systems in place to protect our environment, to having a safety net to take care of people um, who aren't uh, receiving adequate income. Uh, it has all kinds of problems. The inequality has all kinds of problems in terms of health, not just in terms of the ability of poor people to get access to health care, but there is a lot of data that shows that more unequal societies are more unhealthy societies. Um, across, Even everything else being held constant. So you've got a health system, it's just as good in one country as in another. If in the more unequal society, health outcomes are going to be much worse. So it translates into all kinds of uh, diseases and reduced lifespan and increased 
mortality rate, increased infant mortality rate, all kinds of indicators um, that are, at the end of the day, reflections of higher inequality. Um, and then, of course, there's all kinds of reduced access to opportunity, not just for people who are poor, uh, but the ability to get to, high, to get a high-quality education in the public schools is undermined, but and then even at the, at the university and college level, massively undermined by inequality. And then even for the set of people who are able to maintain themselves in what we call the middle class, there's a much less, there's a much higher degree of stress, which just massively diminishes your quality of life because you're worried so much about being able to maintain what you have in an unequal system where opportunities are diminishing, where the, where the core, uh, where the, where the floor for a good society and decent paying jobs is being undermined. You're just not sure about your ability to maintain what you've got for yourself, your family, and for your kids. And this diminishes the quality of life across the board for almost everybody in society, except for this really tiny upper tier. Um, and it, going, you know, most acutely again for the poor, but going far beyond the the harms to people who get defined as as poor in our society. You used an interesting uh, pair of words there. You said democracy deficit. Could you elaborate on that a bit? What is democracy deficit? There's a lot of different ways to look at it, but one way to look at it is if you have a lot of money, you have much more influence over the policymaking process than someone who doesn't have a lot of money. One one sign of this is the ability of, of, of multimillionaires and billionaires to buy their way into office. If someone uh, like Michael Bloomberg in New York is able to effectively buy his way into the mayoralty, he spent more than $100 million to get himself elected the first time. Uh, he, there was a two-term term limit in place in New York. He spent a lot of money to get that overturned, and then he won a third term, also spending you know tens of millions of dollars. A regular person couldn't possibly do such a thing and can't, and can't compete with it. Um, but even in the policy-making process, there's just obviously countless examples of policies being skewed to reflect uh, corporate power and lobbyist influence, and those lobbyists work for the people who pay them, uh, not for regular people whose interests ought to be represented in a democracy. So what does this say about the value systems of, of the United States now as a country? Well, it's a very interesting question. I think there's a there's a kind of reinforcement that goes on between uh, heightening levels of inequality and and changing values. So when you have a more equal society, you have the, the society tends to value uh, equality and puts in place policies not just to deal with poverty, but also to try to maintain a more equal society. And what we've seen over the last 25, 35 years. Um, as inequality has gotten has become worse, are a, a shifting set of values that have rationalized those policies and helped make them possible. So, of course, there are always conflicting ideologies in any society. And in, in the United States, there are long-standing tensions between the the equality impulse and the idea that everybody in this country um, is a self-made person and can, you know, get deserves what they get and gets what they deserve. But that that idea. That second one has really overpowered the equality impulse in the last 25 and 35 years. Um, people are very good, um, who have a lot of money, are very good at developing personal and also public rationalizations for why it is that they have so much money and why that's a good thing for society and why they 
and why they deserve it. Um, and our society becomes a less caring society uh, as well. Um, it's more everybody out for themselves. You know, in, uh, in the, 19, at the end of the 1980s, Oliver Stone made a movie, Wall Street, where the, the villain in the piece declared that, that greed is good, Gordon Gecko. Of course, that now seems very modest. That was a response to a, an abusive culture on Wall Street that, that seems like the timid old days compared to the Wall Street culture that we now see. So the, the culture has really shifted. The values have really shifted. That reinforces the policies that make inequality more possible, and that rising inequality itself reflects back on, on the culture and changes the culture, I think, for the worse. Robert, I know your time is limited and you have to go very soon. Uh, one last question. I mean, w what you're describing sounds like, it sounds very serious. I, I mean, it sounds like the end of the United States, if that's not being too dramatic, as we know it. Uh, how do you see our future if this continues? It's one of, it's one of if not the most serious problems that, that we face. And, of course, it embodies... Um, Many, many of these other problems, so it, you can't really pull it out from, from the others. But I do think that in terms of, if you, you, could t you can think about it at the community level or you can think about it at the national level, what is it that we want out of our communities and why do we exist as a country? What do we value and what do we, what do we hope and aspire to be? What are our better selves? And I think that the set of changes that we've been talking about um, all run against the higher values that we hold, our, our greatest aspirations, and, and the, the kinds of communities that we would like to create. Now, of course, there are many countervailing tendencies. Um, there are people across the country, there's a massive increase in volunteer work across the country, creation of all kinds of non-governmental social safety net kinds of programs, which I'm sure you're going to talk about in the rest of this program. Uh, David can give very graphic descriptions of, of immigrant communities demanding rights and asserting the rights, all these many positive counter-trends in the society. So it's not as if we live in a totalitarian place and everything is for the worse. But this set of trends that we're talking about, I think, does play um, all, to the, all to the worst in our society, and it's, and it's gotten much worse um, over the last 25 years. The, the big challenge is, is to reverse course. It's to, it's to embrace these other tendencies to reemphasize um, the importance of, of equality and creating a caring and sharing society and trying to do that both in terms of the values that we hold and we put forward to our kids and in our communities, but also really focusing on the policies that reinforce or under you know, reinforce inequality or uh, promote equality and making the right choices. And that's not from going to happen from individual action. That's going to happen when people join together and, and demand those kinds of policies um, and assert that notwithstanding everything else we've been talking about, democracy still is ruled by the people and that we, the people, intend to take control of the policies and, and go forward with a country that's, that speaks to the best of us and the best of what we hope to be. But, but you're saying, though, that this isn't something that's about to happen. This is something that has already happened and we need to do something about it. In other words, the great middle class is not the great middle class as a beacon to the rest of the world that it used to be, and we are much more like the Latin American countries that we used to look at where 1% controlled the rest of the country, correct? So that's absolutely right. I mean, these things are a matter of trends. They're never absolutes. Um, but we have been trending badly 
um, for at least a quarter century, um, and and for long enough now, and, and, and a severe enough trajectory that the, that the results are very acute. So this is right. We are not talking about how things might get sometime in the future if these problems aren't fixed. We're talking about the situation we're living in right now. Just the way it is right now. I mean, we know that the, that uh, ancient Greece and Rome did not fall overnight. It was a progression over a period of time, and and people look for the trends. And you're telling us about the, both the trends and what's happening right now, and the importance of raising our awareness and what we must do about it. That's exactly right. Robert Weissman, President of Public Citizen, thank you very much for participating. We really appreciate the national perspective that you bring to us. We're going to let you go right now, and thank you again for participating from Washington, D.C. Thank you. You're welcome. We'll be back with Allison Pratt, Director of Policy and Services at the Alameda County Community Food Bank, David Bacon, international journalist and celebrated author, and Fred Watson of the Open Heart Kitchen right after this short break. You know I love that organic cooking. I always ask for more. And they call me Mr. Natural on down to the health food store. I only eat good sea salt. White sugar don't touch my lips. And my friends is always begging me to take them on macrobiotic trips. Yes, they are. All but night I take out my strong box that I keep under lock and key. And I take it off to my closet where nobody else can see. I open that door so slowly, take a peek up north and south. Then I pull out a hostess Twinkie and I pop it in my mouth. Welcome back to Mind, Body, Health and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Miller. We're here with Allison Pratt, Director of Policy and Services at the Alameda County Community Food Bank, David Bacon, international journalist and celebrated author, and Fred Watson of the Open Heart Kitchen. Allison, let's start with you. What's the most important finding of your organization's recent study about hunger? Sure. Um, good morning. So, good morning. Um, <laughs> You know, I, I think our study was part of a nationwide study, and the important thing to know is that nationwide right now, hunger really is on the rise. There are 49 million Americans that are struggling with hunger today. Uh, Feeding America, which is the umbrella organization for the nation's food bank network, is providing food to 37 million people each year. And this is an increase nationwide of 46% over the last four years. Uh, Allison, I've, I've got, excuse me for interrupting, yes. but that number that you just threw out, I've, I've got yes. to ask. You said 49 million Americans are... Struggling with hunger today. That's one in every six or seven people in this country. Uh, yeah, so according to Feeding America, it's one in every eight Americans that is actually um, reaching out for emergency food resources. I, I'm, I'm awed. Please go on. Yes. So, um, you know, and, and national economic indicators, including the unemployment rate, they do lead us to believe that the number of people facing hunger will continue to rise significantly over the coming years. Um, once a person falls into poverty during a time of recession, it can be very difficult and can take a very long time for that person and their family to recover financially. Uh, many of these people are likely to be experiencing food insecurity now and into the future. Um, so I said uh, nationwide, it's one in eight Americans that are currently seeking help from emergency food providers. But in Alameda County, California, where I work, we're actually serving one in six residents. 
Uh, Alameda County is an urban Bay Area county. It includes major cities such as Oakland, Fremont, Berkeley. Uh, and certain trends that are exacerbating hunger in the U.S. are happening even more rapidly here in California and in the Bay Area specifically, um, such as the squeezing or, as uh, Robert Weissman just put it, the hollowing out of the middle class. So when you look at our data, one of the most surprising findings about hunger um, in our area that we found is that more households are supported by work, and at the same time, more households are experiencing food insecurity. And for us, this was, again, really evidence that low-wage earners truly are losing ground here. Uh, they're suffering job losses when the economy is down and then failing to share in the prosperity when the economy is, again, booming. Let me underline uh, something you're saying there, please, Allison. Sure. You're saying here that we're not talking about just families where both parties, both parents are not working. You're talking about where one or both parents are working, but they are such low-wage earners that they're suffering from what the government is now calling food insecurity. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So um, currently, of the families that are accessing help from our food bank network, 42% of those households are supported by work. They are employed. Um, and looking back over the last decade worth of data, this is the most, these are the highest levels of employment that we've seen. And at the same time, we're also seeing higher levels of food insecurity. This is the highest level of employed food insecure people that we've seen. Is that right? Yes, so that we have seen. And this is looking at our local data again. Um, but we believe that, you know, uh, Alameda County is a, you know, it's an urban California county, and we are kind of a bellwether for the nation. Um, so trends that we do see here tend to, we see them kind of spread out. So, um, you, you know, and one other point just to make there is that we've seen that to, to really uh, be economically uh, self-sufficient, a family here would need to work three full-time minimum wage jobs. So it really is that, you know, the, the low-wage earners, they continue to lose uh, purchasing power and um, are unable to provide basic necessities for their family. So in addition to seeing more working households, we're also seeing more children going hungry. Uh, households with children, especially very young children, are particularly vulnerable to hunger. And, you know, there are many health consequences of childhood hunger uh, that you could probably expand upon, but one of the most visible and yet at the same time counterintuitive consequences is obesity itself. Uh, Americans in high poverty areas have a higher chance of being both food insecure and obese. And I know that can be kind of a hard thing for people to, to wrap their minds around. How you can so both. counterintuitive. Yes. It's hard to wrap your, our, our minds around how you can both be insecure, how you can not know wh whether you're going to have food enough for your next meal and at the very same time be obese. Right, exactly. How, how do those hang together? Please explain. So this can partly be explained by the types of food that are available and at the same time not available in low-income areas. So um, when looking at low-income parts of, um, for example, the city of Oakland, California, we'll see entire swaths of the city that have absolutely no uh, major grocery store, um, but then at the same time are kind of peppered by smaller um, corner stores and liquor stores where uh, things like fresh fruits and vegetables are just not readily available. Um, and you're also going to see a higher proliferation of fast food outlets in low-income areas as well. Um, um, in other words, these folks are not able to walk to their local food store and get nutritious food because the local store that they could walk to is more a convenience store that doesn't carry fruits, vegetables, and so on, but carries fast food. Is that that's what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. And and then I think, you know, kind of on the... Uh, the 
the the other component to that is affordability as well. So oftentimes, um, you know, we'll we'll have families that will describe uh, long, arduous uh, journeys via uh, bus and other forms of public transport uh, to get to a grocery store, and when they get there, they'll um, be faced with choices. And oftentimes, the the fresh fruits and vegetables are going to be more expensive options than the processed food. And I know that you know when we're doing uh, um, presentations on this issue, we'll often show the example of bell peppers versus a box of macaroni and cheese. Um, the bell peppers are going to be more expensive than often two boxes of macaroni and cheese. And if you're um, you know a struggling parent and you have children whose bellies you need to fill, are you going to select the macaroni and cheese or are you going to select the bell peppers? So I think um, you know it's a, a, the the issue is access, the issue is affordability, um, and the third issue, which is important, I, I think particularly in urban areas, is that there's often a lack of safe place for play and physical activity that can exist in low-income areas. Um, again, when we speak with people in our community, um, safety and issues of violence and safety at public parks is a really big concern for residents as well. Uh, is, it, is it accurate? Uh, I read somewhere that, uh, that close to 50% of your food bank clients are children and teens? Yes, yeah, that is accurate. Um, it's about 43%. And when we collected this same data four years ago, it was 35%. So unfortunately, we're seeing uh, a higher proportion of our usership um, comprised of, of children. That's a, that, that's a, a staggering number. It's a staggering number. And I also heard that close to 80% of your, of your client households with at least one child under 18 are now facing uh, low or, or very high uh, food, uh, low food or, or high food insecurity. Is that also correct? I mean, you hear, yes. the, you hear the incredulity in my voice. I mean, these numbers are staggering. That is correct, um, you know, and, and the terminology, so, so we, the way we get to the answer to that question is by asking a series of questions that are designed by the, um, the USDA, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, um, and, and the terminology has switched over the last few years, and, and that very low food security used to actually be called hunger, um, but the USDA no longer calls it hunger, so that's how we report the data. Is that sa- that's a way of sanitizing? Security. Is that sanitizing the word? I mean, you know, food insecurity, it doesn't sound as... As, as dramatic or as painful as hunger? Is that what that's about? You know, I, I, I can't answer for the USDA, but I mm-hmm. agree that food insecurity uh, does not sound as dramatic as hunger. And so, you know, when we do describe it and talk about it, we do try to bring the word hunger into the conversation because that's exactly what, that's exactly what these families and these children are experiencing. Uh, you know, and we, we also see the, the issue of the lack of affordability um, or access to high-quality food as a problem for, um, for seniors as well. We are serving a large population of seniors that often have um, chronic health issues that are exacerbated by, by diet as well. Um, you know, and while these recent research findings are shocking, they're not surprising to us at the Alameda County Community Food Bank. Um, why not? Why, why is it not surprising? So over the past two years, we've been experiencing really sharp increases in our requests for same-day emergency food referrals. Um, you know, if you compare our calendar year 2009 to 2007, um, we've seen uh, the number of emergency, same-day requests for emergency food double. Um, we imagine also that this problem of hunger will continue to escalate as the economy slowly recovers. What is a same-day request for emergency food? Tell us, please. So we operate an emergency um, 
uh, toll-free helpline where people can call us uh, Monday through Friday between the hours of 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. and um, request food that, that day. So these are folks that are in, um, in a crisis situation, which unfortunately occurs all too regularly for many of the households that we serve. Um, they'll call us. We will uh, find them a place where they can receive either a hot meal or a bag of groceries that same day. And, you know, again, we've seen it double, those requests for food, um, those same-day emergency food referrals double between 2007 and 2009. What, what makes you think, if, if, if anything, that this is going to turn around rather than increase at this point? You, you know, we don't you, we don't see it turning around anytime soon. Unfortunately, um, we still have uh, lingering high unemployment here in in the Bay Area in particular. And you know, again, as I as I mentioned, I think uh, up front, we do see that once a family falls into poverty um, during a protracted period of recession, it can take a really uh, long time for them to uh, you know financially recover to the point where they they no longer need assistance. Uh, Allison, uh, if I understand you correctly, the the high un- Unemployment uh, being corrected or, 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 or progressing to a, a lower unemployment isn't necessarily the answer if such a high percentage of your people who are food insecure or hungry are already employed. Yeah, you know, absolutely. And again, it's the um, it's the the type of work, and it's the the low wages. And again, it's the um, you know, as Robert Weissman was explaining, the the uh, the accumulation of wealth at the higher end of the income spectrum, where we do see um, you know executive pay rates growing at such a rapid rate, and at the same time, the purchasing power of the the minimum wage continues to stay stagnant or to even decline. Um, so we, you know, we, yeah, you you definitely do have that situation where even if folks are working, uh, they're still not earning enough to, to um, you know, to, to provide basic necessities for their families. That's right. So one- I mean, where is their light at the end of the tunnel if they're looking forward, uh, those who are unemployed, looking forward to getting work, but the work that they're looking forward to will still keep them in the hungry or food insecure category? So I think there are, there are two things that we kind of identified with our study. Um, one is that when it comes to the issue of hunger, there are resources out there. There are federally funded um, um, food programs that are surprisingly very, very underutilized. And I know that, you know, we've heard a lot about the food stamp program lately. Um, we found that even among folks that are accessing emergency food, a very low percentage um, are actually accessing the federal food stamp program. So we look at um, connecting. And, and our food bank, the Alameda County Community Food Bank, has um, invested a, a lot of resource into connecting eligible families to the federal food stamp program. And we look at that as, uh, as kind of step one in asset building and resource building for that family. So we're able to bring in a small amount of resource. Um, we're hopefully also connecting them to things like the earned income tax credit. Um, from there, we can move towards um, uh, you know, um, developing a savings plan for that family, uh, connecting them with financial resources, even something as simple as a checking account, and really starting to, to, to build assets and resources with that family. Um, and it can be as simple as connecting them to the food stamp program as step one. I think another opportunity that we've um, identified is connecting households and individuals to to education resources. If you look at the folks that we're serving at the Alameda County Community Food Bank, um, the vast, vast majority have either um, a high school education or less. 
And so we really do see um, equality of opportunity and making higher education, but also vocational education, adult education, um, uh, you know, accessible as being a key to providing families with a pathway out of poverty. So I think, again, it's the um, connecting to federal food programs, the asset building, and connecting to education, I think, could be two, two answers to some of the, the problems that we're, we're seeing today. Allison, I'm a doctor of clinical psychology, and what you're describing sounds depressing. It sounds depressing to the people who are going through this, to the one in six, one in seven, or one in eight. It sounds depressing to the families and to the children. Are you seeing depression amongst these people, and and how do they keep their spirits up, and what's being done to help them keep their spirits up? Um, Yeah. I think, you know, one of the things that we do here at the food bank is we're, we're uh, very focused on um, on systemic change. And I think one of our um, core competencies here at our organization is um, engaging in, in policy work. And we actually do um, a work with our our community, with our network of food providers, with their volunteers, and with our um, emergency food clients to um, engage in in uh, policy work to make food programs more accessible, to preserve the safety net, um, to, uh, you know, preserve all of those programs out there that are meant to help a family transition off of assistance and um, into, uh, you know, education or, or employment. So I think, you know, advocacy can be a real, um, can be a real uh, empowering um empowering opportunity for a lot of the clients that we serve. And I know that we also have uh, Fred Watson on the line who can share his story and can maybe, um, you know, uh, share how, how, how people are finding hope even amongst the, um, the, the kind of the, the bitterness of, of hunger and poverty. Yes, we're going to talk to Fred next, Allison. The, the, the situation that, that you're describing does connect with what, uh, what Robert Weissman was telling us about the the small percentage, the one percentage uh, uh, at the top having such an unequal influence on, on the entire country uh, and, and, the, and the, how attitudes about the rest of the people who are suffering uh, affect the entire country. Are the people that you're coming in contact with, Allison, on a regular basis, are they us or are they them? Is there really a difference between those of us who have food security and those who don't, or are we really all us? No, I, I think absolutely us. I think they're us, we're us. Um, I think the answer is, is, is a resounding us. Um, I, I do think that when you have kind of that, that um, the hollowing out of the middle class and a, um, and a deepening chasm between those who are low-wage earners and um, those who are at the higher end of the income spectrum, that um, the fear is that, we, as a society, we, uh, we're not empathizing with each other the way that we should be. Um, I, you know, I think that, you know, again, Fred is a good example of how, you know, we're all just kind of one paycheck away. And, you know, so many people in the Bay Area are, are absolutely in that situation. Um, and other urban areas throughout this country, um, high cost of living areas where, um, you know, you're one paycheck away from missing a rent payment and, and, and then it can just all spiral from there. Um, we do find that with the issue of hunger that, you know, it's often the first place where a family will um, 
will will go to, to kind of cut their budget in a financial crisis. People want to keep a roof over their heads. They want to keep their electricity on. But there's often a little wiggle room in the food budget. So we do find that when, um, when families are responding to a financial crisis, um, hunger can be one of the first things that crop up because, uh, you know, again, it's kind of an easier place to to cut your budget. Well, you, you've been mentioning Fred Watson. We're going to bring mm-hmm. Fred Watson on now. Fred is okay. a sub- Thank you, Allison. Stay, Thank you. Stay, stay with us because we're going to okay, have more we'll discussion amongst all of us. Okay, we'll do. Thanks. Welcome, Fred. Are you Good morning, there? Yes, Good I morning. Am. Fred, you were a suburban homeowner earning a six-figure income. You had a massive downsizing in your business, and it eliminated your position as an IT project manager. You exhausted your unemployment benefits, your savings, your retirement, all the while you were taking classes. Finally, you drove yourself to a daily hot food distribution site open, uh, operated by Open Heart Kitchen. Is this all accurate? That's what was sent to me. Yes, Doctor, it is. Actually, I'm kind of the unfortunate poster child for our discussion today in regards to the uh, food uh, insecure individual. And um, I had to make a decision certain mornings whether I I paid my PG&E or I ate. And uh, that's uh, certainly a tough decision because within my uh, employment years, I contributed to... uh, the food banks, and those uh, resources that help the community. I never imagined uh, at any time in my life that I would be uh, the recipient of those donations. And I had, had, I had done everything in my career to prevent where I am today. Someone has joined the conference. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Who just joined us? Uh, this is David Bacon. Oh, good. Welcome back, David. Excuse me, Fred. Sure. Please continue. Uh, so I was uh, burning off the savings account, and uh, I had tried a couple of entrepreneurial experiences to get back into the business field, and, and those certainly never panned out. So I was blessed with finding a, a, a former colleague in the corporate world who was a um, volunteer for Open Heart Kitchen, and she posed the, after uh, expressing to her the things I was going through, and she asked, well, how are you making... Uh, ends meet and eating. And I said, well, you know, funny thing, you asked that. And she said, well, you know about Open Heart Kitchen. And I was totally unaware of the hot meal program that we had in the Tri-Valley area. So it took me actually a couple weeks to uh, gather up the reality that I was in need of a uh, hot meal program and uh, drove myself over to one of the uh, several locations that uh, Open Heart has for the uh, folks like myself, and walked through the doors, and that was uh, a, a significant emotional event for myself. I can imagine. And when when was that, Fred? That was uh, probably April, May of last year. A- and when was it that you lost your job? Uh, I was downsized uh, from a major corporation a couple years before that, and... I had, it, I had mentioned that uh, in lieu of going back into corporate America, I looked at a couple of entre- entrepreneurial experiences. Mm-hmm. Those didn't pan out. So I looked to get back into uh, different areas of corporate America, and I found there was very little corporate America to get back into. 
So it was a couple of years after you were downsized, to put it uh, politely, uh, that you went to the uh, open heart kitchen. What's it, what's your life like now? What's it like at the open heart uh, kitchen? What's it like uh, doing what you're doing? Well, I will say this, that uh, for myself, I believe that sometimes God puts us in places where we need to be or where he needs us to be. And one of the advantages to showing up at the open heart kitchen was they had a position, a low-income uh, position for a volunteer coordinator, and they offered me that position. Now, the advantage out of this was I was able to take those years of uh, technology, project brand management, program management, and actually be able to help the organization, um, benefit the organization, and help them out in areas that they were <clears throat> never had that opportunity. So, for me, it was a win-win. I still get to use my skills. I still get to keep them up. Um, I'm helping the Tri Valley community, helping those in need. Um, myself, I get, I get. The hot, I'm a recipient of the hot meal program still. It's part of the, the income process with Open Heart Kitchen. And I'm, as I said this before, I kind of get the, be, the, the poster child, and I want to make sure that your listening audience <clears throat> understands this is not about me. This is about their neighbors. Uh, my neighbors did not know and probably still don't, not know in many cases that I have been out of work for a great deal of time and that I am a recipient of the hot meal program within the, the Tri-Valley area. And as I'm in those, uh, those kitchens and I'm, I'm helping out, occasionally I get a chance to actually do hands-on volunteer work. I see those people walk through the door, and I see that look on, the face, on their faces because I imagine that's the look I had on my face was, what am I doing here? And when I catch those people standing at the door, I try to get their attention and wave them in and just say, come on in and just do it. They're all us, aren't they? They're your neighbors. Yes. The new face of hunger looks different today. It is, no, it is your dual-income family who's now either a single-income or single-part-time income. It's your single parent struggling to make ends meet with no income it's your low-income seniors it's your title one students who are not getting fed on the weekends i'm 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 almost speechless but not quite fred thank you so much for for what you're sharing with us and your openness in doing so when you mentioned you know the face of people who are hungry i immediately thought of you david bacon because you're both a journalist and a photojournalist. So let's get you into this conversation. David, what's your occupation? Tell us about it and what you have found out about hunger in this country. Well, I write a great deal about um, <clears throat> immigration and the way our food system functions. And so I think what I want to talk about this morning is where hunger is coming from in our world here, because after all, um, we live in a country that probably produces more food than any other country on the face of the earth. Um, so why is it with such incredible amounts of food being produced, we have hungry people here? Um, so 
I think we could take a look at a couple of examples that sort of give us some insight into why this is happening. Um, this last year, we saw a lot of meatpacking plants close around um, the United States. And first of all, that causes enormous problems for um, the workers there, people like Fred, who lose their jobs and then themselves become unemployed people um, and people who are hungry. But um, let's take a look at why those meatpacking plants closed. The problem for meatpacking companies, and we have just a very few meatpacking companies in the United States today. There are five meatpacking companies that dominate all the production of meat here in the U.S. Um, their problem is, is that they produce too much. And the more meat that they produce, the more cows and pigs that go into those plants and get slaughtered and cut up and wind up on the shelves of supermarkets, the lower the price of meat goes. Um, so we, um, as, as people, our interest is in eating healthy meals and trying to increase the amount of protein in our diets. Um, and yet we go into a store and we see that a piece of steak on the shelf of Safeway costs $10 a pound. So in order to keep the price at $10 a pound, um, those meatpacking companies restrict production. Smithfield, for instance, just closed one of its largest pork slaughterhouses in Sioux City, Iowa. That plant had been going for maybe 50 or 60 years. There were 4,000 people that worked in that plant, um, and it was closed basically in order to keep pork prices high. So the problem is that we're producing food, but not for the sake of actually feeding people. We're producing food as a commodity. For the sake for the of making of money. Sold. That's right, for the purpose of making profits for the people who do it. Um, and this is not just a problem for us here in, in this country. Um, we negotiated a free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico in the early 1990s, the North American Free Trade Agreement. And what that did is it allowed U.S. grain producers to ship grain to Mexico and sell it in Mexico at very low prices. Now, we subsidize grain production in this country. Our last farm bill had about $2 billion in subsidies in it for big U.S. grain producers, corn producers in particular. And again, there are three companies that monopolize grain production here, Cargill, Continental Grain Company, and Archer Daniels Midland. Well, those companies began dumping grain um, subsidized with our tax dollars. In other words, our tax dollars went to those companies and allowed them to sell their corn at a price that was um, lower than they would have been able to sell it had they actually had to pay for the costs of growing that corn with the money that they were getting in, get, um, bringing in from selling it. So they dumped that corn on the Mexican market at a very, very low price. In fact, it was a price that was so low that... Mexican farmers, especially small farmers in rural villages in southern Mexico and Oaxaca and Chiapas and states like that, um, could no longer grow corn and sell it at a price that would actually pay for the price, pay the cost that it took them to grow it. Now, these are communities where people have been growing corn for hundreds and actually, in some cases, thousands of years. But all of a sudden, it became impossible for those communities to survive. So in a way, the massive production of subsidized corn 
in the United States by these corporations led to hunger in Mexico. So you're saying, excuse me for interrupting, you're saying, you're saying we the people of the United States through our tax dollars, we chipped in, subsidized these companies so that they could lower the price below what it cost them to, to produce the corn, sell it at an even lower price than Mexicans, who are much have a much lower standard of living than we do, sell the corn to them at, at prices lower than what, than what they themselves can produce the corn for, thereby putting them out of work. Did I get that right? You got it exactly right, and that's only half the story. Well, before I go on, did I hear you say before that that if that if these large companies, let's say, I'll just use an example, have two production plants and they're producing in both of them, they found that it, it's more cost-beneficial to them to close one of the plants so that they could keep the prices up on the product coming out of the other plant, sell less but make more of a profit, rather That's than right. sell more coming out of both plants and do more volume and feed more people at a lower cost. That's right, and at a lower price to consumer. At a so lower price to consumer. It's not in their interest to make food affordable to us. It's, it's in, in their, their interest, interest to, to keep the price high. In order to make more profit for their That's commodity right. rather than to feed. That's right. So let's think again about those people in these little towns in the hills in Mexico, and southern Mexico, who could no longer survive um, growing corn. They had to leave in order to be able to find some means of sustaining their families. And so by... Hundreds of thousands people went to big cities in Mexico where unemployment is pretty high. They went to northern Mexico where a lot of them work as farm workers producing fruits and vegetables like strawberries and tomatoes for sale here in the U.S. And then a lot of them crossed the border and became farm workers here in the United States. So, and as farm workers here in Fresno, California, or working in those seafood plants, for instance, in Albion, <laughs> right there on the Mendocino Coast. Um, those workers become workers in our food system here in the United States, working for big monopoly producers here at very, very, very low wages. Um, in fact, the wages of farm workers here in California are so low that people go hungry. People can't afford, for instance, to eat meat more than maybe once a week. Um, so, and, and because of people's immigration status, people don't even qualify for the kinds of public programs that have been established in this country under popular pressure to be able to at least help hungry people eat. In other words, if you come to the United States, if you're one of these farmers that got displaced in Oaxaca and crossed the border and came to the United States and began working as a farm worker here, and you can't really afford to put enough food on the table for your family, if you try and get food stamps, you're going to be told, no, you don't qualify because you're an immigrant. If you can't show legal immigration status, and in some cases, if you can't show your citizenship status, you don't qualify for the food subsidy programs that we have here for food um, insecure people here. So uh, let me interrupt just, you, David. One second, Allison Pratt. If one of these people that David's talking about came to your food bank, would they qualify? 
Um, if they if they came to our, our food bank, um, they would absolutely be helped by one of our our um, our network of 275 member agencies, either at a food pantry or a soup kitchen. Um, we also help many immigrant households of uh, mixed status. Um, so, for example, um, you know, if one of the the farm workers that David was describing happened to have um, children that were born here in the United States, then we could uh, do a food stamp application and connect their children to the food stamp program. Now, we know uh, that obviously that's not going to provide enough resource for the entire family, but it could help um, by providing resources for the children in the household. Fred Watson, uh, what, uh, Fred Watson, what about? I, I say one yes, thing here. Uh, go, go ahead. That's that that is true about the programs that the food bank itself runs and for the food pantries and the soup kitchens um, that are using the food that comes from the food bank. In other words, the food bank does not put restrictions on the food that it provides um, based on people's immigration status, but the federal government does. Ah. And a lot of the food that is available for hungry people in the United States comes directly or indirectly from the federal government. For instance, food stamps programs. Food stamp programs do have an immigration status requirement on them. So we have a kind of a, a two-tier system here in this country about who's whose hunger qualifies for help and whose hunger doesn't qualify for help. And in many instances, the differentiation between those two tiers or those two statuses of people is people's immigration status. David, what's it like for you covering these issues and, and, and coming into close contact with, with, with the people who are real people who are suffering from what you're telling us about? Well, um, I want to go back to what um, Bob Weissman was saying at the beginning of the show here. Um, I was a union organizer for 25 years, so I look at this problem, first of all, it makes me angry. I get really upset about it. It's, I think you might be able to tell from my tone of voice here. But um, I also have a, a lot of faith and optimism about people's willingness to try and do something about this problem. So, you know, one thing that people do is they organize food banks and food pantries and soup kitchens and the kinds of things that the Alameda County Food Bank um, does, and I think that's a very, very positive um, contribution. Um, and in fact, you know, I try and write about it and take pictures of the kinds of activities that um, go on in communities to help people um, try and find food if they if they don't have enough. Um, but I also try and write and talk about and um, take pictures of other efforts that people make to address the kind of social and economic inequality that Bob Weissman was talking about at the beginning, organizing unions, for instance, or fighting against the kinds of unjust immigration laws that we have that sort of are turning us into a society of people, some of whom have rights and other people don't. I think these are all part of a much larger, broader social movement that is addressing hunger um, and is also addressing the causes of hunger. And the uh, problems of food production as a commodity, but also the problems of poverty and the concentration of wealth that we talked about at the beginning of the show here. Allison, Fred, David, any concluding thoughts on the information you bring our listeners today? How about you, uh, Al? Yes, Allison. 
yeah, I, you know, and again, I think you, you said it best when when you described folks that are experiencing um, hunger and poverty as being um, part of us and our neighbors. Um, you know, one one other concluding thought is that you know people. Um, might not realize how much food banks have actually changed over um, over the past decade or so. And, you know, in terms of helping low-income communities to access healthy uh, foods, food banks such as ours are actually providing, um, you know, uh, tens of millions of pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables into the community every year, as well as just those shelf-stable uh, items that people typically um that people typically associate with the food banking industry. Uh, so just, you know, I want to thank you uh, for for uh, bringing this issue to light and for, you know, ha- having me on the show and my fellow guests and, and giving us the opportunity to raise awareness about, about hunger, uh, the disappearing middle class, and the health consequences. Well, thank you very much, Allison Pratt. Allison, Doctor? Yes. Yeah, uh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's there. all right. Is that you, Fred? Yes, it is. Please speak. Uh, I'd like the listeners to know that we're all just a breath away from unemployment. And what keeps the soup kitchens and the food banks open are donations, whether it be food, money, actual volunteering efforts. 90, 98% of what Open Heart Kitchen does is through the volunteers. And if the listening community is out there and they have the opportunity to reach out and in some way volunteer to their local food bank, their local uh, soup kitchen, their local hot meal program, whether it be financially, whether it be through food donations, whether it be actually tending those soup kitchens or food banks to help serve those people. Thank you. Uh, thank you. I think that's a great way for us to end the program today. I want to say again thank you to Allison Pratt, to David Bacon, to you, Fred Watson. The message that we're hearing is that there is a real stratification of the classes in this country. These are not just numbers. There are real people who are suffering and suffering mightily. We're hearing that one in six to one in eight in our country is suffering from food insecurity. This is not something that's about to happen. We are being told by these experts that this is already happening. It has happened. And we're being asked to reach out to help one another, to go to our community food banks, to do what we can to turn this around so that we once again become a country of us rather than a country of we and they. Thank you for listening to today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, which is contributed to by our staff at KZYX and Z, our producer Ron Rogers, and my friend and program engineer Mike Delora. Please join me in exactly two weeks at this time. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness.